So it was one of those miserable, gray, rainy days, and um, one of those days where my mood matched the weather, you know what I mean? Um, I was in my car, and I'm on the way to my next meeting. This is a few years ago, but I'm on the way to my next meeting, and it's raining, and I'm just feeling, I don't know if you know um, what it's like, but you wake up and you just hate everything, (laughs) You're just miserable, miserable. Like you feel like you're suffocating. You feel like you want to run away from yourself. You don't like yourself. You don't like anyone. Like you just feel terrible. And here I am, the pastor, in my car, driving to this meeting. I know I'm going to meet with this guy. I've met with him before, and I know what it's going to be like. He's going to pour out his heart. He's going to ask me to speak into his life, and I'm just going to want to be like, stop sinning. <laughs> stop it. <laughs> and uh, that's probably not good. So I'm, I'm on the road, and I come to this uh, red light of this intersection, and I pull up, and I pray, God, my heart is not right. I don't know how to snap out of this. I am completely helpless right now. I am completely miserable. And while I'm finishing that prayer, suddenly, bang! Someone runs into me from behind. Like, literally, there's this giant luxury SUV. And uh, I hop out of the car, and I, I run back, and I look, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay. It's not a big deal. But there's this woman in the front seat just weeping, and these two little girls in the back. And I'm like, is everyone okay? Is everyone all right? And, and um, they're okay, but they're totally shaken up, totally freaked out right then. And I look at my car, and it's got a few scratches, but have you seen my car? Uh, nobody cares. So I'm like, okay, phew, we're all okay. And... Take a deep breath. Not going to be a big deal. I, I get back in my car, and I realize, like, this sense of, like, I could die at any moment. Like, life is a gift, and I realize something's changed in me. It's like suddenly in that moment, like, like physiologically, like, I could feel all the stress, all the things that I'd been worried about, they were drained out of me. Like, that feeling like I hated everything was changed. In that moment, I felt, like, just overwhelmed with gratitude And that's when it hit me. God just answered my prayer. God loved me so much that he took a giant luxury SUV and hurled it at me. Sometimes it takes a crisis, something bad like losing a job, losing your health, your marriage spiraling out of control, saying something you wish you could take back, having an SUV smash into you. Sometimes it takes a crisis to see things clearly, like put things in perspective, to, to see your own heart, to be able to sort those things out. So we're in this series called What Do You Want? And leading up to Christmas, over the next couple of weeks, um, hundreds of millions of Americans are going to hear that question, what do you want for Christmas? And they're going to be asked to search their heart, like, what do I want? What are my desires? What would make me satisfied or happy? And there's going to be two big guides, we said last week, two guides to take us along this journey to Christmas. And one is the American industrial complex, right? They're going to spend billions with a B, To subconsciously influence your desires to tell you what you really want is our product. What would really make you happy is if you buy this, another shirt or car or house or whatever. Like, I need a Lexus in my driveway. Then I'll be happy. Maybe I would. haven't tried that one yet. But then there's the second set of guides we find in the scriptures. 
ancient Near Eastern guides by the name of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they too say there is a way to find what you're looking for. They want to take us on this journey of fulfillment, but they think what we're really looking for will be found in a manger, in poverty, in humility, in simplicity, in a place called Bethlehem. It's a very, very different story. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at different stories about this man named Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of what we really want, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this week, we're going to hear from the good Dr. Luke. Luke was a physician, one of the earliest Christians, not an eyewitness of Jesus, like he wasn't there during that time, but he was with, you know, guys like Paul and Timothy. He heard all the eyewitness accounts. It's believed that he interviewed Mary, as in round yon virgin Mary. To write this record we know of the, as the Gospel of Luke. So in Luke chapter 8, he's going to give us this fourfold story that I, I think ties into where we're headed in this journey. In these four episodes, he's going to lay out this idea that Jesus alone can satisfy our deepest desires. But what we're going to note is that in order to find those, in order to discover those desires, in order to know our own hearts, it's not the desire that stands out in these four stories. It's crisis. That These four stories mark four different moments of crisis for an individual in which in that moment, only in that moment, can they know what they really want and who Jesus really is and how he really meets their deepest Needs That in these scenes, it's only in crisis and desperation and helplessness and powerless that we can come to know Jesus, others, and ourselves. So there's a famous line, uh, you may have heard it in some form, by Machiavelli, the uh, 16th century Italian author. He says, never waste the opportunity offered by a good crisis. It's like, don't waste a good crisis. That a crisis gives you something. It offers up something for you. Now, he's speaking from a political standpoint of how to maneuver nations and things. But but this is true. We find this in the text. This is true not only of nations, but this is true of our own heart. In one sense, a crisis is a gift. It gives us clarity that is impossible to achieve without that moment as we'll see in Luke chapter 8. So for time's sake, I'm not going to go through all four stories. I'm going to just skip over the first two. I'll I'll just briefly cover those. And then we're going to dive into Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. If you want to turn there, um, follow along. We'll dive in. So the first scene, though, prior to this, the context here is the first scene in this fourfold story is this. Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee. This is an actual photograph of the Sea of Galilee from like the early 1900s with some Arabs who are going out in a boat. What I find amazing is that that's probably what it looked like in Jesus' day, too. Like, it didn't change that much over 18, 1900 years. Uh, anyway, if you've ever been there, you know that the Sea of Galilee is kind of a misnomer. It's more like the Lake of Galilee, right? It's like a, a glorified lake, but it is a lake. And, and they're going out in this little boat, probably similar to that size. And, and while they're out on the boat, a furious squall comes out. And as you read the text, you realize that it's not just, it's like, the, it's as if the storm itself is angry. That's how the text reads. Now, um, quick Bible quiz. Peter, James, and John, what were they before they followed Jesus? Fishermen, fishermen. So they were fishermen on this sea, right? So this storm on this sea with this boat 
If anyone in the world is qualified to weather this storm, it's these guys. But they are freaking losing their minds like everyone else. Um, it must be bad. Have you, have you ever been out on a boat on rough waters, like a little boat? My father used to own a 17-foot sailboat. And one time we went out in a storm. And I tell you, it is terrifying. Terrifying. So everyone's losing their mind, except, of course, Jesus. And that seems to be the point. That everyone's like freaking out. We're good at dying. Jesus, where's Jesus? He's asleep, sleeping like a baby. And this is the moment of crisis when they're sure that they're going to die. And we all react differently in, in that crisis moment. But they don't react so well. Like they say in, in Gospel of Luke, it's recorded, We're going to drown! And they wake up Jesus. Um, the Gospel of Mark adds a little nuance here that I think might be helpful. Uh, it says they woke him up and said, don't you care if we drown? Not please help, but don't you care? Where are you right now? And this moment is revealing, like when life is spiraling out of control, we need to know that our lives are not just subject to chaos. When our lives are controlled by something other than us, we need to know that someone is in control. And maybe to Mark's point, we need to know that someone cares. So Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind and wave, he talks to them, says, be still, and it's perfectly still. And the disciples, these men who've been following him for years at this point, they look at him and they're like, who is this? And just when you think it like it can't get any worse, they land on shore and then a demon-possessed man comes up <laughs> screaming at them. This man is possessed, it says, um, with a whole legion of demons. He's naked, demon-possessed. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, let's get back in the boat. But Jesus doesn't. He leads them into this. And I want you to hear this. He leads them into this moment, into this crisis to show them. He leads us into this moment to show us that there's something worse than a storm. There's something worse than the forces of nature. There are forces of evil. They want to dehumanize you. They want to control you. They want to speak for you. They want to do terrible things in you and through you and to you. In this moment, it's revealing, too, there's nothing the man can do. He's terrorized and terrorizing. He's controlled by something dark. There seems nothing. It says no one could contain him. No one could even bind him down with chains, the text says. That there's nothing he can do. There's nothing anyone else can do. And what do we need at that moment? We need, we need our screens to work. Need. Praise Jesus. We need someone more powerful than us to set us free. We need someone to free us from our demons. So in this heavily symbolic act that I don't have time to talk about, but is subtly genius, Jesus cast out the demons out of this man into a herd of swine, pigs, and they rush down into the sea and they all drown and the story ends. And that brings us to our text for today. We've already seen the forces of nature and the forces of evil. Luke chapter 8 Starting in verse 40, here we're going to see 
the last two scenes of a fourfold story, uh, scenes three and four in this, and they're so interwoven together that it, we call them scene three and four, but they're really, you'll find one in Luke's mind. Starts like this. Now, when Jesus returned, this is back to the other side of the sea, a crowd welcomed him. He's quite a celebrity at this point, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came. And we can stop right there. And he's a synagogue leader, a guy named Jairus. We already know his whole story. Like, we've seen this guy, this type of guy, show up in the gospel time and again. He's the guy with the wealth, the power, the self-righteous guy, the guy with all the answers, the guy who does not like Jesus or what he's doing. The guy who stands to lose everything if Jesus keeps doing this forgiving of sins, preaching his kingdom type thing. We know all kinds of things about Jairus. Like, hasn't anyone told Jesus that we have a perfectly good system for teaching the law? He can't go teach the law on that mountain over there. He has to go to the synagogue like everyone else. And we have a perfectly good system for forgiving sins. You go to the temple. You offer your sacrifice. We have a perfectly good system for people to find healing. You go to the priest. What does Jesus think he's doing? He's messing up the system. Jairus stands to lose everything. But Jairus, he comes, and we read, He came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. And this, if you know anything about shame on our societies, like, this is unthinkable. Jairus, the synagogue leader, is, is falling at his feet, pleading with him, begging. No upstanding leader in the community would do this. No one would do this. Why would Jairus humiliate himself like this? People like Jairus are repulsed. And frustrated and confused by Jesus. They don't beg at his feet. So why would he do it? And we read the answer in the very next verse. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So it was um, a Thursday night. And our the church I was at at the time, the leadership meeting was going on. That's why I remember it was a Thursday night. We always had our leadership meetings on Thursday night. At the time, I was on staff of this church in Dallas, and, and I was the staff representative to the Board of Deacons, which means I went to these meetings that were primarily about things like, what type of light bulb should we replace, and, and who the contractors are, and how to do whatever with heating and budgets. And, and I, um, you know, about halfway through, I want to, like, shoot my brains out. <laughs> and... Um, I'm sitting there, though, and I have this presentation to make, so I'm waiting for my turn to make my presentation on behalf of the staff. And then um, right then my phone rings, and it's my wife. And I'm like, why is she calling? She knows I'm in the middle of the meeting. I have to give this presentation in front of the whole board. Um, so I, I duck out for just a minute, and I'm like, I'm in the middle of a meeting. I hope this is important. <laughs> and, um, and Jenny has lost it. She's weeping. And my daughter at the time, she just, in broken sentences, I could only piece together little bits, but uh, my daughter at the time was only a couple months old, and she had a seizure. Her eyes rolled into the back of her head, and she was unresponsive, and she had totally freaked out. And I was like, did you call 911? She was like, yes, I called 911. Paramedics are here. We're going to Children's Hospital. I got to go. And that's all I know. And so I get in my car, and I'm on this highway driving down to Children's Hospital. And all I know is that my daughter's somewhere up there in an ambulance. And I have the worst-case scenarios. The, you know, parents, you know this. The worst-case scenario is going through my head. For me, that is um, growing up, there was a, a, a boy younger than me who 
had an episode like that, and then he never matured above a, like a three-year-old level. And I saw that all growing up, and that's all I can think about. All I know is that my daughter's somewhere up there in an ambulance. So when you're following an ambulance or when you get that call, it brings for you such a sense of clarity. All the things that were so important that you valued, all the things you thought were so important, they just fall away. Suddenly you can see what you really want, what life's really about. So here's Jairus. um, He's not supposed to come to Jesus. If a guy like him were to follow Jesus, he stands to lose everything, his wealth, his power, his position, his friends, his reputation. But when your daughter's dying, you don't care. And so he pushes his way through the crowd and begs Jesus to come to his house. And it says in the next line, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Like, think Black Friday crowds. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. And they just like dropped this detail in there. For 12 years, she's been bleeding. And you don't have to know anything about this woman to know her story, too. Jairus is the synagogue leader. We know who he is. This woman's been bleeding for 12 years. We know who she is. We don't know the details of her bleeding, but we know. I mean, it's some type of uterine hemorrhage. Guys, let me explain this. Um, In today's world, that's inconvenient. 2,000 years ago, this ended your life. Like, just think of it at a medical level. You live in a world where you don't have changes of clothes. You don't have running water. You don't have ways to wash up. You don't have modern hygienic conveniences. But that's just the smallest part of this. She was cut off from everyone and everything. So according to Leviticus chapter 15, she, um, she was unclean. So long as she was bleeding, she was unclean. Let me explain what that means. That means that she was barred from the synagogue, barred from usual relationships. She was viewed as though she had the plague. Like everyone was afraid to touch her, afraid to be around her. If she came in the room, everyone backed off. Like it was like viewed as like she had this spiritual filth about her. Like if you touch her, you might become unclean. So everyone backed away from her. No one wanted to be around her. Imagine no man would marry this woman. No one, there, she had no chance of having children. She had no way of having any money. Um, if An ancient textual version, um, there's a note in one of the ancient texts that says she had spent all she had on doctors. And that's very likely the case. That she was money. And here's the deal. Even um, no one would hire this woman. Women had no way of making money apart from their husbands. And just to be, she couldn't even prostitute herself. No one wanted her. No one loved her. No one touched her. No one wanted to be near her for 12 years, which just happens to be the exact amount of time that Jairus' daughter has been around on this earth. So what would it be like to always feel dirty, to feel ashamed, to feel like no one wanted to be around you, to feel like God was disappointed with you, to feel like you weren't welcome in church, to know that if people found out who you were or what you had done or what was wrong with you, they would shame you and would not not want to be around you. So right now we, we see this crowd 
And she's not even supposed to be in that crowd, but she's hiding in the crowd. She's hiding in the crowd. She knew that if everyone knew what was wrong with her, they would be pushing her out of the crowd. But she sneaks under the cover and she reaches out and she has to get to Jesus. And it says, she came up behind him, hiding herself. She touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Anytime Jesus or God the Father ask a question, you know you're in trouble. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are pressing against you. Um, hate to tell you this, Jesus, but nobody knows. Everybody touched you, Jesus. Like, Peter, thank you, Captain Obvious. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. I have no idea what that means, but doesn't it sound interesting? Yes. And yet, don't you want to be touched by Jesus like that? And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she can't hide anymore. Jesus is seeking her out. Jesus is seeking out this woman. She came trembling. She's terrified at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Now, isn't it interesting that the proud, wealthy, well-positioned Jairus, when he comes to Jesus, he has to humble himself and beg to meet Jesus. This woman, she hides in the shadows. She doesn't want to be known, but Jesus pulls her out of the shadows When this woman comes to him embarrassed, impoverished, alone, ashamed, he stops everything and says, I want to recognize this woman and what I've done for her. I want to recognize her faith. I want to recognize her. That he stops everything in the presence of everyone. He says, hey, everybody. I want you to see her. I want you to see that I made her whole. I want you to see that she has nothing to be ashamed of anymore. I want you to see that I am not ashamed of her. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, Jairus' daughter is 12 years old, and he's very concerned about her. But Jesus is just as concerned with this daughter of God who's been suffering for 12 years. And notice he doesn't just heal her. It says he's meeting her deepest need. He calls her what? Daughter. Like he's welcoming her into the family of God. And he recognizes her. He gives her full attention. And then he sends her out with the promise, go in peace. That's shalom in Hebrew. This wholeness. Wholeness with herself. Wholeness with God. Wholeness with others. That she's going to have a wholeness that she hasn't known for at least 12 years, maybe ever. And when Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher any more. I have a few friends who buried their children. It's an unspeakable grief. I can't imagine what's happening in Jairus' head at this moment. So this past summer, I attended a course at Cambridge, and one of the sessions was uh, Dr. Joanna Collicott. Uh, she's a psychologist, professor, Anglican priest. Um, she gave a lecture 
on how moments of crisis like this, intense grief, stress, difficulty, how they challenge our assumptions about life and how then they form us spiritually, psychologically. Um, that whether we realize it or not, she says, we all have like a basic set of assumptions that we go through life with. And some of them, some of the examples she gave were like, it's about how the world works, who God is, how life is supposed to be. So things like the world is basically a safe place. Parents are supposed to care for their children. Kids are supposed to outlive their parents. I mean, things like this, just basic, basic assumptions. These might not be your assumptions, but we all have basic types of assumptions like these that then become the matrix through which we view all of the world and make our moral decisions and how we direct our lives and how we make sense of our lives. And she says, when something happens that challenge your most basic assumptions, when they're shattered... When your house is broken into, when your health is stolen from you, when your parents don't love you, when you bury your own child, it doesn't just make you upset. It challenges everything you thought you knew. It casts a shadow of doubt on everything, and that in that moment, you're not sure about anything. And she said, what, what happens in that moment, both spiritually, psychologically, as you view it, is that something happens. For some people, there's this turning point for almost everyone. You enter into that moment of crisis, and some people, they experience God in a way that they've never experienced before. This peace, this thing that they could never know apart from that crisis and through that crisis. And some people, they distance themselves from God and from others. She said, either way, When you enter into that moment, it transforms you. It transforms your relationship with God, with others, with yourself. It transforms how you view the world. It reshapes your basic assumptions about life. And Jairus is in that moment. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And this, if you've been following the fourfold story up to the, this point, this seems to be where Jesus has been leading the whole thing. Like, this crisis didn't just happen. Like, every step of the journey has been leading to this moment. Even, even the fact that Jesus paused to recognize the woman who'd been bleeding was long enough to let Jairus' daughter die before he got there. Jesus wants us to enter this moment. This moment when all of our assumptions about the world and about how life works, about who God is, all of them are shattered like glass on the floor. And in this moment, Jairus has a choice. In this moment, we all have this choice. All of us eventually will have to face it. Do I trust Jesus for my deepest desires, for the longings, for the reason I live or not. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in, uh, in with him except Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. You notice with the, the woman, it was very public. He wanted to recognize her publicly, but this, this is going to be a private matter. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. In those days, they were literally, you would hire wailers to come to your house. Not joking, not making this up. Where people would come and wail. You see this through the Old 
Testament prophets, whoa, 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 you see it through Isaiah and Amos and other passages where they have these wailing passages. Um, that this is what they would do. Jesus goes up on the house and there are these wailers out there. Just imagine how much the synagogue leader, his only daughter, 12 years old, had died. Imagine the crowds. The whole synagogue would have come out for this. Imagine all of her 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old friends. Imagine her mother. Stop, stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. And uh, in Mark, we read it in Aramaic, which I love, Talitha Kumi. Like, it's a little girl. Little girl. He takes her by the hand. Little girl, wake up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Jesus told, told them to give her something to eat. And this is a first century thinking here. Your appetite proves that you're not a ghost. This is why, seriously, after the resurrection, you see Jesus eating all the time. So I think resurrection glory involves a lot of food, one of the two, but probably both. And it says her parents were astonished but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. And so, so here's the story. Here's the, the two stories, episode three and four, that be, really become one story. It's, we have the impoverished, powerless, timid woman who has been isolated, alone, suffering for 12 years. She's blocked from the family of God, blocked from the synagogue, not allowed to even be part of it. And she shamefully hides in the crowd. But what does Jesus do? He seeks her out. He finds her. He calls her daughter. He not only heals her, but he welcomes her into the family of God. He gives her a new wholeness with herself, with God, with others. And then over here, we've got the wealthy, powerful, authoritative man whose 12-year-old daughter is dying. He's a synagogue leader. He's respected. He's got power. He's got clout. He's got everything. But he has to humble himself, literally humiliate himself, beg Jesus in front of everyone in order to get Jesus to come in. And Jesus privately brings his daughter back to life and makes this man's family whole. That in this crisis moment, we see two women. Both are given back their lives. Two families are made whole again. But get this, for the poor, for the oppressed, their way to Jesus is very public. They have to stand and be recognized so that everyone can know how much God loves them. And for the wealthy and the powerful, it's very public, and that they have to humble themselves publicly. That God's work in their life is very private. Fascinating. So with this fourfold story, what Luke has laid out is really one story that you see whether, whether um, you are a follower of Jesus like the disciples or a demon-possessed man. Like someone who is haunted by dark, dark things you can't explain. Whether you are the most powerful, wealthy, religious, upstanding person, self-righteous person in the community, or you are someone who is oppressed and ashamed and has to hide in the crowd. We all hold two things in common. Crisis is coming for us, 
And Jesus wants to meet us in that moment. Our crisis moment is coming. If you haven't had it yet, it's coming. But Jesus wants to meet us in that moment. He has authority, we see, over the forces of nature, over the forces of evil, over sickness, and even over death in the four stories. That just because I'm out of control doesn't mean he is. And just because he's allowing me to go through this doesn't mean he doesn't care. That there's no moment, even in his death on the cross, where Jesus is not in control. And while I might not know why he allows certain things, because he died for me, I can know that he cares for me. And while I might not know how this crisis is going to end up, I can know that because he rose from the dead, I can be sure that there's nothing, nothing he can't redeem, he can't overcome, he can't undo. Um, This passage is one of those passages where um, really the application is now go out and find a good crisis. Go! Have fun! Merry Christmas! Because it's in the crisis that you will find Jesus. It's in the crisis that he will could lead you to a deeper version of yourself, of him, of life with other people that you couldn't possibly know. And this is one of those things that I sincerely believe. In fact, I've heard most of your stories and I know that crisis is the moment where Jesus meets you most deeply, almost to a person in here. The good news is we don't have to directly deal with crisis. We don't have to experience it to learn from others. That's the great thing about that we're allowed to enter into this story and that you can right now, you can identify with these figures. You can identify with the disciples, with the demon-possessed man, with this woman, with Jairus. You can identify with them and you can allow God to start working in your heart that he can prepare you for not only what you've been through, but also where you're headed right now. Um, I would say, though, at the end of the day, um, it's not the same as actually going through it. So for some of you, you've been through it, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I just want to give you this opportunity that wherever you're at in that journey, all the things you've questioned, where everything that you thought you knew about God, about yourself, about life has been shattered, to let Jesus start to put that back together for you. That even if you don't know what he's doing, you know that he cares. Even if you don't know how this is going to end up, you know that in the end, He's the Lord of resurrection. He overcomes all things. This has been deeply personal for me. Um, This fall hasn't been that easy for me. Kind of came to my own crisis moment about seven weeks ago now, um, which I'm not going to go into detail on, but kind of enough to know that it, it was hard. And uh, I have to say, it's been the best seven weeks. I've probably learned more about God and myself and my wife and my church in the last seven weeks than I have in the last seven years. I wouldn't give that up for anything. I pray that you may be similarly afflicted. 
And if you're not, if you sit here and God's not working in your heart and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I would just encourage you as you leave today, wear your seatbelt. I'm going to leave this time to you and God. Pour out your desires to him. Let's pray. Father, I do not wish, I do not wish bad things on anyone. And yet, God, we live in a broken world where if if your son doesn't come back, we know that we're all going to face demons and life out of control, and we're going to face sickness, and we're going to face death all of us. And we're going to face things that just smash the way we viewed you and the way we viewed ourselves. And God, I I know that this is an opportunity that you don't leave us in the dark in those moments. So Father, um, I give you this time. I pray for those who have been smashed and their assumptions have been shattered, Lord, that you you would start to put them back together right now. And God, for those who, who don't know what I'm talking about right now, Lord, I pray that you'd be preparing them for that moment when it's coming. Father, you are our desire, and we give this to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.